You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. In October of 2018, we talked with Laura Krantz about her new podcast, Wild Thing. Her first season dealt with Bigfoot hunting and the discovery that she was related to Bigfoot researcher Grover Krantz. In season two, she moved on to a slightly bigger topic, the question of intelligent life in the universe. I very much enjoyed season two of her show, and you can find it on your favorite podcast aggregator or at its home site at foxtopus.inc. That's foxtopus.inc. Season two of Wild Thing is called Space Invaders and covers everything from UFOs to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence to Medi and more. Check the show notes for links. Monster Dog. All right, tonight, make sure I get that clap in there. All right, tonight, Monster Talk (laughs) welcomes back Laura Krantz. She's a former editor and producer at NPR working on Morning Edition, and she has written for publications such as Newsweek, Popular Science, and Smithsonian. And in our last visit, she introduced her podcast, Wild Thing, which in season one presented a fun and informative and very well-produced look at the world of Bigfoot research. But now for season two... She's turning her eyes to the sky to look at the question of extraterrestrials and the culture around those topics. So welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back here. (laughs) Now, again, on your last visit, uh, you didn't get to meet Karen, my co-host. This is Dr. Karen Stolzno. Hi, Karen. Nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you, too. Excited to have you here and and to, to get the chance to talk with you. Yeah, I hope your questions aren't too hard. 
<laughs> you guys well, are the you guys are the professional monster people. I'm I feel like I'm just sort of like dabbling in it a little bit. Dilettante, right? Professional <laughs> monster people. <laughs> well, but you know what? We all, even after ten years, you clearly are walking in with better audio producing skills than we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, after ten years, we know nothing. Yeah, it's pretty sad, really. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need to upgrade our tin cans and string. I'm not sure, but yeah, one <laughs> oh, day. Well, now that you've got this under your belt, how did season one go? Um, it seemed like your name was popping up everywhere, and the show was like really showing up prominently when I looked at iTunes. So, so did things turn out pretty well? Yeah, season one did really well. Um, it, well, I guess I should qualify that it's not you know Joe Rogan, um, but well, it did really is? well. In, yeah, it did well in terms of what I was hoping to accomplish. Um, we had we've had close to three million downloads on the first season now, and the nice thing is is it's evergreen. Like people can come back to it, and you know it's not like it was timed to that specific moment in history. So I still get people writing me now who are like, I just listened to this and I loved it. Uh, I got a lot of good feedback both from people who are certain that Bigfoot's out there and even the just the I want to believe crowd. Um, I had educators saying that they were using some of the episodes in their classrooms to talk about evolution and um, DNA and how DNA analysis works. So that was actually, it was really cool. I was really happy with how it turned out. There was even a kid's spinoff. We were approached by a company called Pinna, and they licensed all of the material from the first season to create one that was developed just for kids between ages of like nine and 13 or eight and 13, somewhere in there. So that was fun to be a part of as well. Cool. Well, I, I know that um, we try to keep it evergreen as well. I mean, you know, every now and then. I was going to say that. Yeah, exactly. Except for the episode on uh, on COVID-19 when right. things just started. <laughs> it, that is a weirdly uh, atypical episode for us. It was, I thought it was useful mm-hmm. at the time. We probably should go back and take a it's look at it. because Outdated think, now, for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That And that, that is but, – but Bigfoot, very evergreen. I was just thinking um, earlier this week about how – uh, we're, we're starting to get into some YouTube stuff, and I thought, you know, it'd be really cool is to do, you know, one of those super cuts where you put together a video of just clips from other stuff and just do a super cut of all the times they actually found Bigfoot on that show, Finding Bigfoot. How many times did they find Bigfoot? Zero times. Show? It really didn't work out. It was a good idea for like 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the Finding Bigfoot people might take a little umbrage with that because they they're certain that they had evidence of it. So well, bless their hearts. Um, no, I, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> I've met Cliff and Bobo, and and we I really get along well with them. I mean, and I mean to be fair, I even though I'm a skeptic, I love Bigfoot. You know, it's it's just we I do. Mean, it's, right, we love. <laughs> yeah, we've put a lot of time into this, and and we wouldn't if we didn't. How can you not love Bigfoot? No, no. I, mean, I mean, whether it exists or not. Exactly. <laughs> so with this new season, uh, so this, this season's about UFOs and extraterrestrial culture, but you take a broader look at that as well. So how would you describe the scope of this season's topic? So this season is really about the search for extraterrestrial life, and that's kind of in all the forms. We're talking it down to the microbial level and whether they're going to find something now in the atmosphere of Venus. Um, and you may have heard the stories a couple of weeks ago about how there's a chemical that they caught, uh, they caught wind of. That's not quite the right word because they're not smelling it yet. Um, <laughs> but they know what it is. And, and one of the few sources for it is, is life. So they're thinking, okay, maybe there's life in the atmosphere of Venus, if not on the planet itself. And then that kind of extends, uh, this search for life all the way over to people who, you know, go to Roswell every year to hash over the details of what went down there in 1947 and try and figure out if the government's hiding anything. Um, so it's it's really this wide range of people talking to SETI scientists who are using this cutting edge, almost science fiction-esque technology to uh, see if we can get a better glimpse or a better signal from faraway planets that might have extraterrestrial technology. Okay. And do you focus on American UFO culture or do you look globally? Um, I focused mostly on American UFO culture just because that's what I was kind of familiar with. (laughs) Um, And because, again, this is such a wide ranging series of topics or it is a wide ranging topic with a lot of little chunks in it. Um, It just was easier to sort of pick a few instances of American folklore such as Roswell 
Um, and then also looking at the UFO uh, videos and the secret UFO program that had come out in 2017. Okay, yeah. America will certainly keep you busy when it comes to UFOs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a recurring visitor that keeps showing up in episodes, Umuamua. So Umuamua is the name that this interstellar object um, it was was given by scientists, and it essentially is Hawaiian for scout, a messenger from afar. It was was the, uh, the I'm be- I'm butchering the translation, um, but it was the first of its kind, at least that we know of. We had this object come into our solar system, and we didn't even really see it until it was already on its way back out again. It was moving tremendously fast. It had kind of an odd shape to it that they could tell based on how the light was reflecting off of it. And it also wasn't following a trajectory that seemed normal for an object like that. They would map the trajectory and then it would shift just a little bit and they couldn't figure out why it was moving uh, because they couldn't see any sort of like off-gassing of dust and and, evaporating water or liquid of some sort that might propel it. So they were kind of scratching their heads, first of all, wondering, you know, is this a comet? Is is this uh, an interstellar or is this object a, a light sail, an alien light sail, an example of alien technology? So this was a big debate that was going on in 2017. And it's just it's fascinating on many levels. One, if it is an alien light sail. Wow. How cool is that? Um, of course, we would need much more evidence to make that kind of claim. But the other thing is, is if it is this an interstellar, it was an interstellar object, but the fact that this was the first one that we'd ever seen is kind of exciting because it's happening right now in our lifetime. And we get to sort of experience the awe of something coming from so far out in space and passing within our visual distance. It's a really beautiful name. There, there's a lot of, of telescopes on Hawaii, um, and I think they were trying to make a nod to Hawaiian culture and recognize mm-hmm. that as they were uh, trying to come up with names. That I think the official name was a series of numbers and letters that lacked the um, musicality. As, as, yeah, as is always the case. <laughs> we need, we need. Uh, it's it's just like IP addresses. We need the DNS names to really make sense yeah. of anything. So yeah, exactly. So, uh, Laura, one of your guests is author Sarah Scolds, and we spoke with her recently ourselves. Did you two meet up to go down to the UFO Watchtower or, or drive down together? Or Yes. Um, so we didn't drive down together. We met there, but we spent a lovely weekend together, and uh, including making a trip to the Colorado Gator Farm, which if you have any listeners in Colorado, I would highly recommend that they check it out. But... Uh, <laughs> We, <laughs> but we, we, we uh, actually have a host in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, oh, do you I, really? I'm in, I'm in Denver. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are in Denver. Have I you am. been to the Colorado Gator Farm? Um, I think my husband has. He's a, a native, native okay. from here. But no, I, I haven't yet. <laughs> it's worth it. It, it doesn't seem like it. You're going to be like twenty five dollars for a ticket. That seems like a rip off. <laughs> but no, it's not. I have been twice, three times now. Worth every penny. Okay. Really? Like, I'm it. sorry. I, I, you know, coming from Georgia, um, if I want to see gators, I really just need to drive down to the south of the state, and they just cross the road in front of you. But what? What's yeah, a crocodile? Right. So. What? What? What's the gator farm doing in Colorado? Isn't that awfully cold for gators? So there's hot springs there, and the gators live near the hot springs, and so the water stays thawed out year round. Um, so you could technically go there in the middle of winter and see alligators covered in snow if you really wanted to see that sort of nature thing. is healing very strange <laughs> yeah no, no they started they started the gator farm because originally it was it was just a tilapia farm a fish farm and then they brought the gators in to help deal with fish waste and also because florida had outlawed gator wrestling but colorado had not so wow <laughs> they found a loophole is this what's this they, florida man what <laughs> <laughs> Do they sell their skins as well and hides? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, I'm trying to remember what was in the gift shop besides two uh, severed thumbs that people had lost in the wrestling matches. So and I, mean, I don't. Oh, it, because <laughs> we're getting way off topic, but it's well, but but it, we all know that gator businesses come with a lot of baggage. 
anyway, the Gator Farm is just down the road from the UFO Watchtower. So we had spent, um, we went to the to the Watchtower and spent some time. I spent some time huh. talking to Judy Messaline, who is the owner and the woman who is behind the uh, creation of the Watchtower, and Sarah, who had done a lot of reporting at the Watchtower for her book. Um, she's a friend of mine, and so uh, she came down to join us and we decided to camp out and see if we could see anything interesting that night. We, I heard some of her stories about her experiences down there. Um, and we just sort of talked about general, like, what do we think about the idea of life out there in the universe? What are the odds that we might find it? Um, Mm -hmm. what does it mean if we don't? So it got a little philosophical as well, but it was interesting to have her perspective because she'd been to the gate. She'd been, I'm not the gator farm. She'd been to the UFO watchtower, probably five or six times by that point. But you, you can't see the gator farm from the watchtower. About a 20-minute drive. Well, that's I'd not say. bad at all. I was just going to ask if either of you saw anything that night then. I We didn't see anything that night. It was so windy. I thought I was going to get my face <laughs> scoured off by the sand. Um, so we actually ended up kind of, of, of calling it out early and, and climbing into our tents because it was just so blustery but sarah has had some experiences down there in the past and you know i mean it's a big wide open sky there's no obstruction to your view you can go up on the watchtower which isn't that tall it's only about 12 feet off the ground but it kind of gets you up off the lay of the land and lets you uh see out a little bit further and Mm -hmm. it's even though we didn't see anything there is something really amazing about looking at the dark night sky like that and seeing all those stars and just kind of wondering. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something that I feel like we forget when we're living in cities. And every chance I get to go out to a place that has a really dark sky and to sit out there and actually be able to see the Milky Way, I mean, we just don't even get to see it that often anymore. True. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a pretty powerful experience. I, I, I took a UFO-themed road trip in 97, and on the way to Roswell, um, right outside of Roswell, there's a a state park. And I, I spent the night in the state park and it was so dark. You couldn't really even see the road. I mean, it was just really, really, really pitch black. And so, yeah, just the night before we go to the UFO museum and all the other stuff out there, just looking up at the sky and seeing, you know, so many shooting stars that you wouldn't see, you know, in cities at all, they would just be too faint but, you know, there wasn't a, a, a meteor shower, but, you know, probably saw six or seven that night. It was amazing. Oh, wow. So it really, so it really I, set, the, set the sort of cosmic mindset before rolling into town. <laughs> were you going for the 50th anniversary? No, that, by coincidence, no. no I, I, was, um, I, I don't even know if I was aware that it was the 50th anniversary. And that was only like the second or third year they had done their, um, right. uh, their festival. And now it's, now it's become quite a big thing. Um, no, I was going because of, um, the Heaven's Gate deaths also happened that year. And after mm-hmm. those people died, I, I kept thinking, you know, those guys are just like me. They're web people, they're internet people, they're tech people, they're sci-fi people. And except for like some life choice differences, they died and I lived, you know, why, why did they join a cult and believe they were going to, a, you know, a spaceship trailing a comet? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here, you know, still alive. It, it, it just, it really just struck me that there's a big disparity, uh, or, or at least a broad spectrum of different kinds of people looking into these matters. And and so I wanted to yeah. kind of like go look at the physical places and sort of get some grounding to my uh, lifelong interest in these kind of topics. Yeah, that would be kind of a little bit weird to see all these similarities and then be like, so at some point these paths diverge. What was the moment at which they? Yeah decide to go Very that much. way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, really. I mean, I mean, like as a Star Trek fan, Michelle Nichols' brother died in that cult. It's like oh, wow. that's that's it's it was hardcore. It really affected me. And I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still bothered by it. I mean, I'm still not not that I knew anybody. I didn't know any of them. It just struck me back at that point this is not something that's entirely entertainment. This is something that has some really big depth of belief and I want to understand better how people can be seeing the same things as me and come to entirely different conclusions. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's affected my life trajectory, but, mm-hmm. but I didn't mean to bring us down. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I think over the years yeah. we've uh, done lots of interesting little road trips and, and investigations and, you know, 
stayed out and uh, camped out at uh, cemeteries and various things Ooh, just that's, to that, how research do, these things. That would have freaked me out. I don't think I could have done that. Well, eventually we all camp out at cemeteries. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking about uh, Westcliff Cemetery, which is actually down in, in southern Colorado too. Uh, and um, my husband, who does the same kind of research and investigation that I do, uh, we went to this cemetery. It's supposed to be the most haunted cemetery in America, too. So I'm surprised you guys haven't heard about it. Well, I yeah, think you have, haven't. Blake, haven't you? I have. I have. But but only <laughs> yeah. from you. So, I mean, I'm just taking your word that this is one of the most haunted. <laughs> yeah, there's a little old battered piece of wood that says it's the most haunted cemetery in well, the country. Well, you can't it, argue with that. <laughs> yeah, but it does have that reputation and people do really travel from around the country and around the world to go there. Yeah. And uh, for some mysterious lights that appeared there in the 19th century uh, and have continued. And so to cut a long story short, it appears to be the reflections on the uh, marble tombs, which are uh, the, the headstones in the cemetery. Oh, but, wow. Uh, People have certainly seen lights there for for decades, and and they're very interesting too. You do see them bounce around, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know if you if you didn't if you just went there and saw them and didn't know the story behind it, it is kind of creepy. Hmm. Where is Westcliff? I'm actually going on a Colorado road trip very soon, so if it's okay. on the way, I'll check it out. I think it's a little southeast, so maybe about um, three hours south of Denver. Okay. Cool. But it's worth visiting. And um, yeah, I've been there during a snowstorm and in the middle of summer, all different kinds of d- different uh, seasons. The UFO Watchtower is about three and a half hours south of Denver, I think, if, depending on how fast you drive, obviously. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the question of ghosts is, you know, is like the question of life out there. It's it's a, are we alone? Is there more than just mm-hmm. this? I don't want to get all Roxy music on us, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, these are all questions that we're never, we may not not ever have solid answers for. And yet some people do. I mean, some people do. I don't. <laughs> well, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of answers that would stand up to scientific scrutiny. Right, right. You also talked about science fiction and science fiction aliens in your, in your series. Is that something you actually enjoy yourself? I have mixed feelings on it. I have real trouble with like suspense and horror movies. Like I get very sweaty and I get very cold and I get very nervous and I don't generally enjoy them, but I will watch them from time to time. Oh, it sounds like how I feel after eating Waffle House, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also think that in doing that particular episode and sort of learning how often I mean, it's when in looking back on it, this it, it's not a huge surprise, but like how these aliens are mirroring what's going on culturally at that time period. It's just kind of interesting to sort of be like, oh, that's why those aliens were, you know, that's why aliens were being depicted like that at that time. Like it started was just sort of interesting to see history and and um, sociology sort of work their way into these movies, which are generally just sort of seen as like pop culture and they don't you don't always necessarily think that there's going to be some sort of bigger statement being made yeah do you, no i heard your interview on mysterious universe and you sounded like like you genuinely sounded exciting talking about rendezvous with rama uh, arthur c Clarke's story it, it totally did remind me of umuamua i had not heard of rendezvous with rama prior to Oumuamua. And so going through the news cycle of hearing these stories about Oumuamua, talking to these different scientists about it, um, seeing all the back and forth, is it a light sail? Is it aliens? Is it just an interstellar object? Are these things as common as dust? You know, And then reading this book and seeing all the parallels. And it was really cool to think about, well, what if what if it was an alien light ship? What if it was extraterrestrial technology coming to like map out the solar system and send pictures back to whatever planet it came from? It just is, it's a cool idea. Uh, I don't know if you read Rendezvous with Rama. I did. I actually, I, I only read it maybe like in 2014 or 15. I worked uh-huh. with a guy named Rama and every time I talked to him, it kept reminding me of it. And I thought I really need to <laughs> knock this out. So I, I read Rendezvous with Rama and uh, Childhood's End. And that's uh because most of my experience with R.C. Clarke actually is not as a science fiction writer, even though he did, you know, the, the story that 2001 was based on. It's actually from, he did a series in the eight, early 80s 
uh, about paranormal topics like Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Universe, Mysterious World. There was like a three three series thing, and mm-hmm. it was so good. It's like this really beautiful mix of of uh, critical thinking and science, and also giving a fair voice to the people who actually believe these things. Uh, it, it's really fantastic. It holds up really cool. well. I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just like the book and I don't want to give away the ending for someone who hasn't read it yet and might want to now, but I thought the ending was just fascinating. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is. You know, they were trying to make a movie, and as you mentioned, it was in, it's in development hell, but um, Morgan Freeman is like the uh, the big flag waver for that project. He really wants that movie to happen, and I, I really hope it happens before he passes. I hope so, too, because it really is fascinating. I imagine trying to do the technology in it, though, or like get the the scenes right in it in terms of like the feel of what Clark created in the book. Yeah. I feel uh-huh. like that would be hard. It, it would have been, I would have said it was impossible until I saw Inception. And when they roll up the highways and stuff for the Inception dream sequences, uh, that's yeah. perfectly, uh, yep. perfectly appropriate there. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> well, maybe they'll jump back on it. Get on it guys. We want to see the movie. <laughs> We're ready. So Laura, you obviously did a lot of reading to prepare for the interviews. Were you surprised by much when actually talking to people? This is what was interesting is I would try and read some of the science that was the papers that had been published. And I would just kind of, I would get the gist of it, but I knew I was missing like big picture stuff anyway. And so really I would sort of read these papers to try and be like, so I just didn't look like a complete moron when I went to talk to the scientists. (laughs) All of them were very, very kind and patient with, which I'm sure were a lot of very dumb questions. Um, but what was interesting was just sort of hearing them describe what they were working on and see them get excited about it. And, you know, you can tell that there's a lot of optimism in this field, which I guess you have to have in something like this, because if you don't, you might as well you, you just hang it up and go do something else. You just can't be discouraged. And so it was really interesting to hear about the new ways that they were trying to solve old problems, um, you know, in terms of like technology that has finally gotten better. So now we can go back and see if we can get better signals from this cluster of, of stars and planets that might be interesting, or if we can get better imaging of this these planets that are going around stars that are, you know, seem like they would be sort of... Um, similar to earth, either in size or in temperature, like there's just so much more available to them. Mm-hmm. And I think especially talking to Jill Tarter, who is kind of one of the the earliest SETI people, one of the early founders is, is really a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she's been fascinated in, about this topic, this search for extraterrestrial intelligence for decades. And I think she's been seen as fringe for a long time 
or at least, you know, maybe a little bit not grounded in reality. And now with all this new technology that's coming out, all of a sudden people are like, whoa, wait, she might be onto something. Like there are exoplanets. There are these planets going around stars that look like Earth, that look Earth-like, that might hold life, that might be habitable. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to see someone who has spent all of her time and energy and career, you know, pouring her interest into this. And finally, there's some vindication in some ways. So Tartar is the one, she is the one that uh, the character in Contact based on, right? Yes, Jodie Foster's character in Contact. And, and that and, was also the subject of one of Sarah Skull's books, which I love the title, Making Contact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Jill Tartar is a legend. Um, I think Sarah said that part of the reason she got into these topics to begin with because she was because she'd seen contact at a pretty young age and was like, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of stuff that interests me. It's, it's got that power. I showed it to my daughters. I, it seems mm-hmm. to have affected one of them. So you don't know which one the science gene is going to take, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't really have a science gene, but I find science really fascinating. I, I did not do well in uh, college biology. I took one biology class, the weed out class, and it weeded me right out. Um, but I just think that that kind of work is amazing. And it's, it's just so exciting to see uh, these things change over time. And even though it feels incremental, if you look back to 20 years ago, how much more we know at this point and how much more we're capable of, it's pretty mind blowing. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the bonus interviews too? Yeah. So the bonus interviews will be available to, um, are currently just available to people who are are buying the entire season. Um, I'm using something called supporting cast as a way to try and fund future seasons. So people can buy the whole season, they can get it ad free. And then there's some bonus episodes available to them as well. And I'll be adding more bonus episodes as we go along. And eventually those episodes will become available to the general public as well. But one interview is with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, who, for people who don't know, is the director of the Hayden Planetarium at at the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York. And he's also the guy who hosts... um, Star Talk Radio. And and Cosmos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I think most of our listeners are familiar with him. (laughs) Yeah, I would imagine. But you never know. Some people, I have run into a few people who are like, who? And I'm like, wow, Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was fantastic to talk to him and sort of talking about this idea of the rare earth theory and how he didn't think that that was likely. And so we had a good conversation about that. We also talked about movie aliens as well. And he has strong opinions on movie aliens, which was kind of fun to hear. He has strong um, opinions on every movie. It seems he does. like so. well, on everything. that could yeah. never happen. This is wrong. That wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also spoke with Joe Scott, who uh, is less of a scientist and more of a science nerd, but he, he does the YouTube show answers with Joe and kind of explores all these different scientific topics. And he had done something that was kind of fun on tardigrades and, um, whether octopuses were aliens. So I ended up talking to him, talking to him about that. Um, cause I've always, always wondered a little bit about octopuses. They seem so intelligent and yet so foreign at the same time. What a beautiful segue. The, uh, octopuses, I think in cephalopods in general, Remind me of Lovecraft, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's horror, cosmic horror, which is also on totally. topic. But in your bonus material, you talked to archaeologist David Anderson, friend of the show. And did. he told you about research that was done by Jason Colavito that ties Lovecraft's origins. Uh, it, it makes a Lovecraftian origin to Eric Von Daniken's ancient aliens ideas. And I, I think he forgot to reference Colavito. But we're actually, I'll put a link in the show notes because Jason Colavito is a, a very uh, – he's an author and a blogger. And he's a very prolific writer, but he's done some really great posts that talk about how we probably wouldn't have uh, the Von Danik and Ancient Alien stuff if it hadn't been for the writings of H.P. Lovecraft and the in the Theosophy of uh, Madame Blavatsky. So yeah, that was fascinating. I didn't know anything about that stuff, and I uh, if you asked me how to how it all comes together right now, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you. I'd have to look it all up again. Uh, there'll, um, be, there'll be <laughs> links to the blogs in the show notes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, pop quiz, you're going to fail. No, it's obscure. It's really obscure stuff. It is, but it was so interesting. And this sort of like shift from fiction to nonfiction and sort of how that happens just gradually. It's almost like a, a game of telephone over 
um, a long time period. Yeah, yeah. There's this weird blending that happens. We've watched this yeah. uh, where fiction affects nonfiction. Well, allegedly nonfiction. You know what I mean? But f- fiction affects folklore, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the the you see all kinds of different aliens, mostly humanoid. Up until a couple of events in the 1970s, I guess uh, in, in 1980, you get uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the book Communion. And after those two things come out, most of the aliens start to look like greys, you know? It's like yeah. it's like the, the, the fiction – and I'm not saying that um, – first of all, I shouldn't even say that the things in Communion were aliens. It's a little unclear. Streber's complicated. We'll get to him someday on Monster Talk. Um, but – uh, on, but it really does. There's a lot of this cultural transfer, and we've actually talked about it in terms of what I like to call scripteds, where movie scripts <laughs> make they make a movie, and then the thing it turns into actual folklore, right? There, there's a lot of cases of that. So, oh, are there really? That's fascinating. Oh yeah, like I mean, uh, there's. Um, I'm not. Sure. I don't think he was first, but Deadlockson and Donald <laughs> Prothero in their book Abominable Science uh, make a very compelling case. Again, they're not the originators of the idea, but they make a very compelling case that. The original sightings of Nessie were heavily influenced by the movie King Kong, that the water uh, – they run into a sort of a, an apatosaurus, brontosaurus-type mm. creature in the swamp in that movie. And it before until it comes out of the water and reveals itself to be a terrestrial, it looks very much like the Nessie description. Yeah, there's a bunch of different cases uh, where – you can see like in, in the Yeti, the, the way that Yeti has changed over time. The stories about it have changed because they've been heavily influenced by the media. Uh, people think of like the, the Abominable Snowman as being white now, but that was not even really a thing until – I think probably the biggest influence on the white Yeti was probably the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I so, was just thinking of that little yeah, guy. So, but, but it's just time and time again we get monsters. Oh, and, and not even folklore. I mean, like, not even the monsters you might think are real, but like the Wolfman. Um, people think of silver as killing werewolves. Well, not until 1941 they didn't. Uh, <laughs> until oh you gosh. get the, the, the Wolfman movie, Kurt Siodmak makes that up as a, as a way to kill werewolves. But that's not, I mean, they just died when you chopped their heads off before this. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it, and then, um, oh, uh, vampires being killed by sunlight. No, that's Nosferatu. So, I mean, there's just like time yeah, and time yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> the black-eyed kids we discussed at the Jerry yes, Drake yeah. recently. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, I had no idea. I need to go. I'll have to. I. You just made me rethink everything. Yeah. No. It, it does. No. It does. Right. I, I just crammed like Blake ten years of research into it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, Laura. Did you talk to anyone uh, for the series who was very obviously fringe um, over the years? Blake and I have come into contact with some interesting characters like uh, Stan Romanek and Jeff Peckman, um, who've had theories about uh, setting up a welcoming committee for aliens and that they've uh, had alien sightings or people who've encountered alien languages. Did you talk to anyone uh, like so I did go to the UFO festival, um, same as Blake, although I went a few years later. I went in 20... What year is this? I'm forgetting now. It's 2020. I went in 2019. Um, That's like 10 years ago. Flat circle <laughs> and I have forgotten <laughs> what decade it is anymore. <laughs> But I went in 2019 and I spent three days there. I talked to a lot of people and some of them I felt were a little bit more maybe grounded in reality than some of the others. There were a few that I talked to who talked about, well, there was one guy who talked about how the Pleiades, which are the seven sisters, um, there are the seven stars but now there are only six stars because the Pleiadans had blown one of them up and then were coming to Earth to warn us about how to avoid that fate. I might be missing something with this story because I was having a little <laughs> difficulty following it. Um, but, you know, I talked to a few people who talked about being abducted or mm-hmm. who had had family members who'd been abducted. Um, And here's the thing is I don't doubt that they've had some sort of experience, but I can't tell, I can't say for sure that it's aliens in the same way that I couldn't say for sure that it's Bigfoot because you still have to have the kind of evidence that stands up to scientific scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was interesting to hear them and hear their perspectives, but those were stories that I had a tougher time necessarily buying into. Well, I I thought it was a very... Uh, well done series and very broad and I think it'll be a great 
Uh, I mean, I, I know I know we do a lot of deep dives on this show, and I think that's you know that makes us kind of niche. Uh, or, but but you, yours is a really good introduction to the topic because you cover everything: SETI, Medi, sci-fi, you know, reality, uh, people's you know shared experiences around these topics. It's really good. But one of the things I was really interested in was you got into the idea of efforts to send probes out outside of our solar system. And there's some pretty wild ideas out there. Do you, do you think or did you get a feel for how likely those missions are to actually get out there? Are you talking about the Starshot, Breakthrough Starshot? I totally am. Yeah. So uh, there's a fellow by the name of Yuri Milner, who's a Russian billionaire. Who oh, it's has, part of that deal. Okay, yeah, okay. part yeah. of the Breakthrough Initiatives. Okay. Um, so this is by far, at least at this point, probably the most ambitious of their projects, and it has a very long timeline in front of it. But as far as I know, they are in the process of trying to engineer the things that they will need in order to send these little probes out. And the goal right now is Alpha Centauri, um, to which is the closest star system. It's four light years away, uh, which with our current spacecraft that we have would take a very long time to get there. Um, but what they're trying to develop is a laser-powered sail that would move at about 20% the speed of light. So it would get there in about 20 years. And then it had these little, this sort of little postage stamp probe attached to it that would then shoot photos for like a day and then transmit that information, upload that information, and then transmit it back to uh, Earth. So... Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy to think about, and they have a lot of troubleshooting to do in terms of like, what do we make the sail out of? How do we make it so if it gets a hole drilled in it, it doesn't, you know, fall apart? Um, how do we make sure the whole thing works and unfurls the way it's supposed to? How do we build a laser bank that's going to do what it needs to do in terms of powering a sail? But they're they're moving ahead. They're trying to engineer this stuff out, which is really cool. Well, at first oh. I thought, well, if they fail, that's a really big expense. But then I thought, wait a minute. If they fail with the first mission, they could turn the orbital lasers back towards Earth. And now you've got a new business model for funding the space program. <laughs> <laughs> you know, space laser yeah. platform shoots us until we um, give them the money they need. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> so how is the show doing so far in season two? And do you have any ideas for season three yet? Um, show seems to be doing well. It's a little bit hard to get traction right now. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that are sort of uh, pulling people's attention in other directions. But all of the sure. response, all of the feedback I've gotten has been really good. I've had a little bit of press. Right. I'm still trying to get more. Um, and, uh, you know, I think decent amount of downloads so far. So, you know, it's coming along. I think there's in another interest in doing a, a children's version of the second season, fingers crossed. That would be fun. To, fantastic. It was fun to do it the first time. Oh, so who did your music? Oh, so the music was done by a guy named Louis Weeks. And he was a friend of a friend. Um, I couldn't get Rumteen. Who, Rumteen Arablui did the music for the first season, but he now has his own podcast and doesn't really have the, the bandwidth anymore. So Louie was recommended to me by someone else, and he did a fantastic job. He did. I, I want to say that um, without copying, it felt very evocative of the original Cosmos music from Carl Sagan, which not, not by Carl Sagan, I believe Vangelis did most of it, but it was, it was very much in that cosmic space theme. It's really nice. Yeah, he, had, he just did a, a really good job of sort of conjuring up this world with that music. And it was, it was really cool to, to be involved with somebody as talented as that. Cause the music is the one thing I think that can really make or break a podcast. But I think certainly with everything going on, a lot of people are looking for escapism and they're looking for something to turn to that's uh, makes them think beyond their immediate world mm -hmm. and all of their problems. So yeah, hopefully you'll, you'll benefit from that. that. Like, people are really excited about the science that's being done. And like, you know, the, the way we're thinking about, tackling these big philosophical and scientific questions. Yeah. And I, I, I was just very surprised because I thought for sure it was going to be all about extraterrestrials in the sort of UAP, UFO, ATIP, that sort of thing. No, it's much more than that. So I was very happy about that. We, we, we will be talking a lot about that with the Sarah Skulls episode that will be coming out before yours. 
But um, I, I highly recommend this podcast. I think you did a great job with it. Thank you. And you're right. Like the goal here was to sort of introduce people to a wide range of topics, similar with the Bigfoot stuff that sort of show the range of it. And then if there's something that captures your attention, go find out more. Yeah, Um, exactly. That was kind of my feeling with it. We've been using monsters as a springboard to talk about weird stuff and, and science for, you know, a decade. There's lots there. It's, it's just, you never know what's going to be the thing that captures someone in the audience and makes them go, I need to know more about this and just sends exactly. them on a trajectory oh, of yeah. learning. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Skewer things. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Well, now the last time you were here and you were, that was your first time on the show. Mm-hmm. We have our signature question, which is what's your favorite monster? And you said way back in episode 176, that your favorite monster is the Komodo dragon. Now this is an amazing coincidence because according to the <laughs> COVID clock, that episode was exactly a million years ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> but since, you, since you're back, I thought we would ask a different question, but still on topic for your show. What is your favorite alien? Okay, so I'm glad you asked this. Um, it actually is going to come from a movie that I watched not that long ago. Have you seen Annihilation? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to give it away, but that alien has gotten under my skin. Like it's, I don't know if I want to call it my favorite, but it has like wormed its way into my brain. And I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I guess that's it. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us again. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It's always fun to talk to, uh, well, it's always fun to talk to Blake and it's been a delight to be able to talk to you, Karen. Lovely to meet you too, Laura. <laughs> this is good fun. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Laura Krantz, host of Wild Thing, a show whose second season deals with the search for intelligent life across a broad spectrum of approaches, including UFOs. You can find a link to the show in the show notes or by searching your favorite podcast platform. When we were talking, Laura said her favorite alien creatures were the ones featured in the movie Annihilation, and I got into a very, very spoiler-filled discussion of the film. It's a thought-provoking movie, and apparently I was bursting to yak about my theories. If you've already seen the movie, or you don't mind spoilers, I've included that bit of our conversation after the outro for this episode. So if you don't want spoilers, all you have to do is stop when you get to the Monster House music. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening. Monster House presentation. Okay, 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 okay. So you are the only other person I've had the opportunity to talk to who's seen the movie. Uh huh. Okay, mm. so I, I don't think I can leave this in the show, but I have to ask. Okay. okay. Yeah. So Karen, I don't I think you've seen it, right? I haven't. No. Okay. Okay. So, do you mind if we just absolutely ruin it? Because I, I, I do not mind. Okay. okay. <laughs> you, you couldn't ruin it for me. She's had time at this point. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> What do you think happened in the lighthouse? Why do you think the alien did the things it did? Yeah, I, this is the part that I have wrestled with. I have and a theory. I, That's why I want to see if you had one. Okay, so. I just think that it sort of goes back to this idea that, like, 
the universe doesn't care. It's just doing what it's doing to like adapt and survive. And if you happen to be in the way or if you happen to be useful, then it's going to use you. And so this, whatever this thing is, was doing just that. So I have a theory. Here's my theory. I just want to share. Okay. Are you, you going to share this for the, the listeners? No, or are you, no, I think, I think this is, this, this is too spoilery, but, but okay. <laughs> all through the movie that we see the alien or, and I shouldn't even say the alien. Cause really the only intelligence we see is that thing in the lighthouse. Everything else seems yeah. to be more non-intelligent, you know, like, like the bear, the yeah, the bear. bear, right. The bear, it's, it's like, it's hybridized. It's like, it's, so it's not like the thing where it takes over and copies. It's like, it tries to merge itself with whatever. And the thing takes on the properties of whatever it comes into yeah. contact with. Well, well, the thing in the lighthouse comes into contact with our protagonist. And what is her central quality? She's self-destructive. And I think what happens is her own self-destructive nature is what the alien copies, which is why it ends up tearing itself apart. Oh. Is that deep? That, is that, that is deep. <laughs> it's like I really that think. Ends. Now <laughs> I have to watch it again, but I don't know if I want to watch it no, again. No, it's, it's, it's worth watching again for sure. I, I, but it's, it's, it is such a troubling and it is very alien. I, and I heard you talk yeah. to Neil deGrasse Tyson and he was like, he hadn't seen it. And I was like, oh man, he should totally watch this movie. Yeah. And, and the only other person <laughs> I know, I guess I know one other person who's seen it and that's Darren Nation. And he hated the movie. He's a, he's a paleontologist. And I, I didn't want to have the conversation because then I would feel like I couldn't have the conversation because I'd be trying to justify the movie enough so that he'd bother to listen to my explanation. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> he hated it that much. <laughs> but it really does. She has so many self-destructive qualities throughout the film. Like even yeah. in, the, even in her, relationship with her her husband as it sort of unfolds you realize she screwed that up too. she's screwing up everything so maybe our best defense against this intelligence is having someone who's really self-destructive meet it you know <laughs> so. that's really yeah that's fascinating i hadn't thought about that but that makes a lot of sense anyway if you, if, if, oh, if, i want to watch it now yeah, yeah it's, it's really good, good. it's really well yeah. done and it's it's just creepy as all get out and it's a girl power movie it's good it's good it is yeah. oh cool I like it Sold. a lot. So, anyway, okay. Well, I, I didn't want to waste your time with that, but I, at the same time, no, I really that's not wasting my time. Okay, that's, good. <laughs> I'm gonna go talk to my husband about that immediately. <laughs> good, good. Let me know what you think if you if you do rewatch it because I, I think it holds up. Yeah. Uh, so when did it when did it come out? Uh, 2017. Yeah, there you I go. Think, 2018. Okay. Somewhere so in there. That's four million years ago. <laughs> yeah, four million years ago. Give or take. Sometimes in the Cretaceous. Lifetime ago. Yeah. <laughs> right before the Cambrian explosion. Exactly. Um. <laughs> anyway, it's lots of fun. Lots of fun. I mean, it's spooky as hell. It's got some yeah. really disturbing imagery. I love, it's beautiful. It's also so it's beautiful and horrifying. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a pretty good way to, to describe it. 